0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's edition of All Things Evangelism. I want to thank you for joining me this week. I'm here with Sven Ostring, Church Plant Director for North New South Wales Conference, and I'm really looking forward to conversing today about our topic, which we're going to be talking about, that God is love, but love is not God. And I think you're going to really appreciate the conversation. And uh, Sen, thanks for for coming on.
1: No, thank you. Thank you, Matt. It's it's a really interesting topic. And Matt, it is really deep to our hearts. It's really close to our hearts, I should say, in terms of we all want to be loved. The fact is that that no, no one of us wants to to feel that we're not accepted, that we're not loved, that the idea that there'd be nobody in the world who would care at all about us, whether we lived or died or, or whatever, would be would be a terrible situation to be in.
0: We all want to experience love. And
1: that's why it's so close to our hearts today.
0: Yeah, that's right. And just before we jump into the topic, I want to say that I believe that there are implications for evangelism and mission. And so you guys will see why we're so excited here in a second. So Sven, the Bible teaches in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. It says, whosoever does not love does not know God, Mm. for God is love. Mm -hmm. And we Bible-believing Christians, those of us who really believe that all of the scripture is inspired by God, we believe that all of its teachings, all of its foundational teachings, communicate other-centered, sacrificial God who loves his creatures. And that's, I think, the kind of basement bottom fact. Mm. Now, we're having this conversation today. God is love, but love is not God. How would you say that, that people could take this verse, God is love, which we all affirm and appreciate and know is essential to all biblical theology and biblical understanding, how could people take this and twist it in a way that's not the best, do you think?
1: Let me just backtrack a little bit, Matt, first of all, and to to analyze why, what is the significance of this statement, God is love. And it is actually grounded in the very nature of God. And that is that God is a triune Godhead. That's what we see in the Bible. That's what we read about in spirit of prophecy as well. And so what we're looking at is a triune picture of the Godhead. We're not looking at a unitarian understanding of God. So uh. as you go back through time, what that means is that there was never a point in time where God was by himself. There was always a time when there was this dynamic relationship between Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit that this existed for all eternity and that is very important so this statement that God is love is actually very important to understand who God is Now the thing is this is that people often say I just have this so great hunger for love to to be accepted to be wanted to to be loved that what they will do is that then they will, separated from God himself. So instead of saying God is love, that's foundational to who he is, we then want to experience the the joy of love in whatever kind of form it may come, if that makes sense. So we're taking the, shall I say, personified, shall, shall I say, the love as grounded in the person and the nature of God, and we're abstracting it out we're extracting it out to be this kind of impersonal quality that we can then attach to anything that we would like. Now, obviously, we can describe love, you you go to 1 Corinthians 13, and it's such a beautiful picture. Love is patient, love is kind, and and we gravitate towards that. But there, there is a problem when we say we're going to extract the concept of love, we're going to abstract the, the nature of love to, to something else because, Matt, the reality is that we are sinful human beings. So what happens is this, is that we take what we want out of that understanding of love. We leave, leave God, we can leave God out of the picture. And then we start to reshape this very concept of God in our own image. <clears throat> this is the very nature of idolatry. So the question is, are we really focused on the God of love or are we starting to make a, an idea that we like, that we put aside some of the things that we are not so comfortable, say, for example, a judgment, for example, and we leave that out of the picture. And we focus on the things that we like. That is the problem we're talking about here, Matt.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost like y- you have to define what love is, right? Mm. So there's lots of views that people have of love. Mm. So a million people could have a million different views of what constitutes love. And yes. read First John 4, 8, have a thousand different interpretations exactly. of God. Because exactly. they're going to then... So, so some people can take their view of love and interpret that text by their view of love yes, rather well. than deciding that they're going to inform their understanding of the God of the Bible.
1: And in that process, we actually distort and diminish the whole concept of love. Whenever we strip it away from God, whenever we extract love out of the person of God, whenever we abstract it out, what we're doing is we're looking at a diminished form. And that happens with idolatry, wherever you see it. Very important. And the, the fact is this Uh, Matt, is that we are sinful human beings and that creates in us a spiritual blindness. Jesus said to the the Pharisees, if you weren't blind, then, you know, there would be no problem here talking about the healing of the blind man. And this is what happens is if we look at this picture, but we have our blind spots and we draw out what we want, but we don't have the full picture. We don't see the person who is the foundation of love itself. There's a very interesting historical situation or, or historical story, which goes back to about 400 BC. So this is 400 years before the, the birth of Christ. And there was a, a religious prophet in Athens and his name was Euthyphro, And he obviously was a deep thinker. And he he was challenged by some of the philosophers at that time, in particular Socrates, and he was also quite enamoured with Plato. Plato was the person that kind of stripped away the abstract from the real. That's where we get uh, Platonic thought. This dualism comes from Greek. So you, you can separate God from love. That's the fun, one of the fundamental ideas. It comes through here. And so what happened was this is that Eutropho created this kind of imaginary dialogue that he had with uh, Plato. And he raised this very interesting question. He said, is something good because God approves it? Or does God approve it because it's good? So he, he was very almost splitting hairs, we could say. But but he was really teasing it out, trying to... Because if something is good and then God approves it, what it means is that there's a goodness apart from God. But if something is good just because God approves it, then it it brings into this concept that the God can be just arbitrary. He could choose cannibalism. He could choose you hate or rape or anything, and just say that's good. You know that's good. it. Calls it calls into question. Good. Exactly. Exactly. And so he he thought, wow, I've been very cunning here. I found an incoherence in the understanding of God. But the problem is this: is what Euthyphro had done was that he'd stripped away this idea of morality from God. And the reality is this, is that God is the moral foundation. He is the standard. His character is the very standard of goodness. So you can't strip it out. You can't Say God is arbitrary in his decisions. You can't also say something's good before God even comes to it. And this is exactly what we have here. The fact is, this is that you cannot separate love from God. That is the thing that we're talking about here. So, whenever you try and say, okay, this, we we uphold love in our society, and, and this is our focus, this is. Uh, what we're committed to. This is what we write laws for. This is what we create a whole society around. But you've separated God out of the picture like we have done so many times. The fact is this, what you're talking about here in terms of love is not love. It is not true love because only you can only have love when it's grounded in God himself.
0: Yes, there's no love outside of God. That's right. Just there's no life outside of God. Yes, And it's interesting. I thought I'd never thought of before was that God makes mankind in his own image and the image of God made he them. Male and female, he made them. And love, as you mentioned in 1 Corinthians 13, it says it gives attributes of godly love, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. And talks about how love doesn't seek its own. And every time in the New Testament, you hear of God's love, not every time, but many times you hear of God's love, There's this idea of giving involved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Husbands, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I live by the faith of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Mm. So you have this kind of corollary in the New Testament between love and giving. And God makes mankind in his own image. Therefore, mankind would be unselfish by nature when we were all created. And you have male, which is different and distinct from female, and then therefore, in order for male to love and female to love male, you have to have unselfishness, right? Like mm. the person who's distinct and different from loving the other, even though the other is different, mm. comes with different qualities, parts, physical and social processes, perhaps. But anyway, so you have this idea that God, who is love, creates beings and then he makes them in his image. Therefore, it's almost like he's giving them love. Love Mm. is a gift and uh, they wouldn't exist outside of God and neither would love. Mm. So love doesn't exist just like life doesn't exist outside of God. I wanted to touch on something that you brought up a few times a little bit back. You were talking about idolatry and how when you take this idea that God is love and then you define God by your view of love, how that's idolatry. Mm. What would you say is essentially like how would you define idolatry? Because I just want to, just for those who are listening to us, I just wanted to define real quickly, what do you think idolatry is on a fundamental level? What is idolatry?
1: Idolatry is really is saying that as human beings, we are created to worship. We have this deep intrinsic desire to worship something. So just like we have a desire to to love and be loved we also have a deep desire to to worship and to see a a defining there's a defining principle in our lives there's a there's a morality that there's a there's someone that we can, we can look up to that who cares about us who will meet our desires and who is always there for us and so what happens is this is that We either worship the true God, the God who created this world in in six days and and rested on the Sabbath. This is true worship. But the problem is sin has broken that relationship. So we are on the hunt, if I could put it that way. We're on the hunt for someone or something to worship in our lives. Mm -hmm. So so what we're doing is idolatry is whenever we put anything in the place of God where we can worship that thing, whether it's an object or whether it's a principle or a scientific model or a theory. Whenever we put something else which is not God in the place of God and effectively worship that, give our allegiance and reorient our
0: lives around that, that concept or that thing, that is idolatry. So if you were to de- deify the concept of love, you would essentially be committing idolatry because you're worshiping this idea of love. Yes. You're not worshiping the God who is love mm-hmm. and who defines love. Yes. That's a really good point. And I wanted to say that just for people who are listening so that they would really make the connection in their minds Yes, to what you were saying. And we are blind by nature. And that story of St. John 9 is so helpful mm. because for those of you guys who aren't familiar, in John 9, Jesus heals a man blind, I believe, from birth. And this man is accosted by the religious leaders and they have this big debate over who healed him. And it's this big kind of weird scene where his parents are called. And yeah. So anyways, he stands up for Jesus and then and then basically he gets kicked out of the synagogue for it. So he's excommunicated for his faith in Christ. And and then Jesus basically in at the end of the chapter starts talking about people being blind. And then the Pharisees who follow him say, are you saying that we're blind too? Mm-hmm. And then Jesus says, if you weren't blind you'd be all right like you wouldn't have any sin but because you say you see your sin remains or in other words y- y- you don't have a clue mm-hmm. when you think you see like you- you're more blind when you think you see than when you realize that you don't see because you're in a natural you- you're in a condition naturally where you just can't you can't understand you can't discern sin has confused your, and you don't know how to judge mm-hmm. or understand and so when you come to terms with that, then you can, then it's okay. Okay. Then it's okay. Your sin, you're all right. You don't have any sin because you're confessing, you're acknowledging, but because you think you see. And I I think as human beings, when we come to terms with our blindness, then we don't presume that we know what the Bible means by what it says. We allow the Bible to define itself what it means Mm -hmm. by what it says. So if I want to find out, you know, what the Bible means when it says God is love, I don't just take my preconceptions of what love means and what love is and then impose that on the Bible and define all the Bible teaches by my shallow view of love. I go, okay, God is love and uh, that's beautiful. That's awesome. And love is a beautiful thing. And God loved the world so much he gave his own life for the world. So that's a beautiful, awesome, great thing. But I want to understand fully what love means and what love is. Let me go into scripture and see.
1: Yes. Coming back yeah. to idolatry, I would define it as this it's misaligned and misdirected worship. So we have the real true God here, but then whenever worship is focused on not on the true God, but on something else, that is when worship occurs. And and we reorient our lives. We allow that principle to to guide us. That is the challenge. And and that can be when we construct. A concept of love which is not grounded in God. And and bring it down to reality, Matt, the fact is this is that in society, we see this happening all the time. A few years ago we had the slogans love is love. We define what love is in terms of our our sexual orientation or, or our,
0: our desires from a sexual point of view. And that's right, because by the way, that's fundamentally what that statement is talking about. It's saying sex is sex. Sexual yes. desire is sexual desire. My sexual desire and what I lust for is as valid as what you lust for. But it, there, there's it's like an unclear... There's no definition there in that term what love really means. Love is love. What do you even mean by that? Love is love. Like anyone even with... I don't know, anybody who thinks on any serious level it's going to go, wait a second, that that statement just doesn't really sit right. Because what do you mean love is love? Like the love I share with my brother is very different than the love I have for my mother. One is one is like the maternal affection is different than fraternal affection. And and my collegial love for my friends at the office is different than my love for, for my wife and my boys. Ooh. And like love is, what do you mean by that? Really yeah. ultimately what it means is but my desires are as valid as yours, my sexuality, what, what I prefer sexually. And they're reducing the idea of love down to s- sexual desire. That's
1: right. And, and the Greek is very helpful for us here because Greek, there was multiple definitions for the concept of love. So you had uh, phileo, brotherly love. You had storge, which is family love. You had, you had eros which is erotic love, which is often what we are actually in society referring to. What is erotic for me? What draws me? What what draws my passion? And then there's another type of love, and that's agape love. That's unconditional love, and, and agape love cannot be manufactured or generated by human beings. It only comes from God. But even in that, it's so important when we, we can still abstract out, if I could put it that way, we can still have a distinct kind of concept of love when we don't recognize that the love is grounded in the very nature and the person of
0: God. Have you ever heard that Ellen White statement where she says that false
1: yes and it's a very important one it's a very important and the the thing is this is that matt you and i in society or, or i should say more broadly in society most of the time we are not looking at statues and images and things like that. And even today, if you talk to a Roman Catholic believer, they would say to you that they're not worshipping statues in their cathedrals. They're not worshipping those statues at all. They're showing respect and right. reverence. It's a way of visualization. So they would actually deny They would deny that they were actually worshipping idols. And I've spoken to, to young people who would say, this is not part of our religious experience. I'm not bowing down to this statue of Saint Peter or whatever. The issue is this: is that we can not only have statues, we can have constructs of the mind which can become idolatrous. That's right. And they're you know, more powerful, more
0: dangerous. When, a, when an ancient shape of a wood into an image of what they perceive to be God. All they were doing was projecting what was in their mind
1: That's right. onto
0: a physical object. And so so the physical idol was a projection of the false concept of God that was already in the mind of the pagan worshiper. Mm. And interestingly enough, their gods were always... Interestingly, right? So the people were capricious. Their gods were capricious. The people were brutal. They're gods were brutal. The people were truce breakers. Their gods were truce breakers. The the gods of the ancients reflected mankind. So mankind was making God in his own image because he was projecting his views, his concepts upon physical material, gold, silver, wood, and saying, this is God. So he's basically saying, I define who God is. Mm. And really to me, when you take the statement, God is love, and, and you really, and you interpret then God by your view of love, you're doing exactly the same thing. And this is a problem, Matt, is that
1: when you create a, a false construct of God, you never rise above the level mm-hmm. of your idolatrous idea or concept.
0: You're never elevated to God's understanding of himself. That's right. You're always left to your meager understanding of things. Yes. That's
1: powerful. You create create an idolatrous ceiling that you will never rise beyond. So this is the point. This is the point. If there is a greater concept of love in the universe, but you create a lower, more diminished form, you'll never experience that higher, greater Experience of love. Yes. So if your vision is an erotic love, you'll never experience anything greater than that. And this is one of the really important things about the very nature of God. The very nature of God. Philosophers talk about that God is what we call the maximally great, the maximally great being. There is nothing greater than God. So he has power to the, the maximum. He has knowledge to the maximum. He he is morally perfect. He is totally loving. He he is present everywhere. God is the greatest being. So whenever you construct something that that is is less than God, it's a diminished form, and you're being defined by that very idea. You will never rise be beyond it, and that that is so so powerful. What so what actually happens is that this is the the key thing, key problem with idolatry. Matt is that we are made in the image of God. We are created to reflect his maximal greatness. That's what we're created to do. So when we worship an idol, when we create God in our image, whether that's an evolutionary God or an erotic God or a metal God or a wooden God or or whatever God you want, the fact is this, is that on one hand, your concept of God is being diminished. But the other thing is this, is that your humanity is being diminished as well. You never have the capacity to grow beyond your idolatrous ceiling that's and this yeah. is the issue yeah, that you're you not experience that's good. A, a intensity depth a the
0: greatness of love when you create love in your own image Lucifer comes to mind right like he he in exalting himself really was debasing himself correct because he he never would have been able to ascend beyond the, the state that God had given him, the position God had given him. He'll never ascend above that. That's right. And in his attempts to ascend above it, he's really descending because his created mind, his created being.
1: Yes. So we're creating the image of God. So mm-hmm. so when we create an evolutionary God, if I could put it that way, what are we doing? We're certainly diminishing the creative power and the God as creator, but we're also debasing ourselves to become animal. That's yes. what we're really doing.
0: Well, Ellen White has this statement where she says that we basically the the dignity of our origin. That's right. To escape the moral responsibility of God, That's so you, you think that you're escaping the thumb of God, who's got you held down, and and in that very escape, you find yourself correct. That's correct. So,
1: so when we create an
0: erotic construct of love,
1: what we all what we're really doing is this is that we are just debasing ourselves to 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 becoming sexual animals or sexual robots. Whatever picture you want to, sexual humanoids, whatever picture mm-hmm. makes sense to you, but we are lowering ourselves.
0: So we are the ones who lose out as well. Yep. And God knows that. Amen. Yeah, it, se- it seems to me that we live in an era where people want love to have no, love to make no distinction between good and evil. Mm-hmm. I think that's really the, the major issue that, that we face in Christendom and, and also just in the world. The, the modern concept of love is that it, it does not distinguish between good and evil. And, but Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 says, let your love be without hypocrisy. Hold fast to that which is good and abhor that which is evil or cling to that which is good and abhor that which is evil. In other words, love makes distinction between good and evil because good is good and evil is evil. Mm. Good is healthy and evil is harmful and to the degree that you hate evil is the degree to which you love. The degree to which you hate evil is the degree to which you love good. That's correct. And so true love that's not hypocritical distinguishes between good and evil. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes in a world that loves sin, we don't love the idea of a God who doesn't love sin. Mm-hmm. And so we want to construct this view of God where he he tolerates the evils of humanity. We know he does tolerate them. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, and God lets his Son to shine on the just and the unjust. And he is in his soul a gracious being who loves even those who don't love him. Yet at the same time, he tolerates that evil. He has taken it upon himself to die for it. But it's not that he tolerates it in the sense that he thinks it's it's okay or he can wink at it or that it's acceptable or that it's, you know, God hates evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. God distinguishes between good and evil. And I think in the world that we live in, people like t- to think that love is willing to accept everything. I think that love is willing to accept everyone, but not everything. And just there's a couple of thoughts. When you were talking last time, I thought, I just got to, I just got to say a couple of things here. And, and I want to end our conversation. You can say, you know, whatever you want to say because you're here to say what you want to say. But I thought like we're talking a lot of the way that people can idolize the idea of love. And we've talked about how God can mis- people can misconstrue who God is by imposing their view of love onto the biblical text and onto God and how that's wrong. And that's good. I think it, it, that's a really important point to talk about. And C.S. Lewis talks about how that's where I got the title for this podcast is that he says, God is love, but love is not God. And he gives a couple of metaphors to explain that. And the metaphor I use is this isn't the best one, but it's okay. And that is that you could say a tree is wood, but wood is not a tree. Just like God is love, but love is not God. You could say the highway is bitumen, but bitumen is not a highway. Mm -hmm. Just like God is love, but love is not God. But I wanna spend some time thinking about and conversing just for a few minutes on what then is love right? Like, the, how do you understand love? How do you get your mind around it? And and b- before we do, two verses come to my mind, and I'm just going to quote them for the crowd. Psalm 50 and verse 21, it says, you thought that I was all together, one and such as thyself. I am not like you. Okay, so you have a perception of me, and I'm not like you. And your perception of that I'm like mm-hmm. you, you think I'm like you. So you have a view of love, and therefore you think that my view of love has to be exactly the same as yours. But I'm not like you. And I think it's Isaiah 55 where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Mm. Lord, nor are my ways your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth are my ways than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And it goes back to John 9. If you think you see, your sin remains because you don't see. You're not like God. You don't know his ways. You don't know his thoughts. And as high as the heavens are above the earth are his thoughts and your thoughts. So don't project your views of love onto God. In doing so, like you're saying, you're going to create a ceiling for yourself. And you're not going to know God for who he is. And this is life eternal, that they might know the Mm -hmm. only true God and Jesus Christ, him you've sent. And so God desires us to know him, but we don't get to know him by imposing our views of love onto him and defining him by our perception. So how do we know what love is? Uh, obviously, there's a lot of answers to that.
1: Yeah, it's a very important question because we all deeply desire love. The fact is this, is that you can only really experience love where, when you really encounter love for what it really is. That's the key in the Bible. The Bible says, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that's the thing. It's similar to, it's similar to our understanding of the past, the understanding of the, the future, the prophecies, history. The fact is this: is that we would be intellectually orphaned. We, we would be blind if it was not for God revealing to us what was going to happen in the future what has happened in the past. That's the reality because we just don't have the capacity of truly grasping, truly being able to head into the future and to know what's happened in the past. We make all assumptions, but our assumptions get it wrong. And in exactly the same way, the only way that we really can understand love is when we experience God's love just raining down upon us, when he reveals that, that love to us. That is the key. And the Bible is very, very specific in the sense that it says, we love because he first loved us. God takes the initiative. God shows us what it's like. If you want, Matt, if you want me to be very specific about what love is, what true love, what the greatest concept of love is, you need to look at the cross. You need to just spend time, a thoughtful hour every day, just at the foot of the cross that is where you really understand what love is. And and that is a completely different understanding of love than, than what we often see in society. Because what we often see in society is the concept that when I get what I want, when I get the feelings that I want, when I receive the experience that I want, when, when I have the relationships I, that I want. But the concept that we see in, at the cross is a God who didn't do it because he felt good, didn't do it because he, he had some great experience or was sexually satisfying. In fact, it was, it was the opposite, it was physically humiliating and shameful. But we see what love is. And so that, Matt, that's what I would like to, to invite everyone who's joined us today, to just spend time at the cross and say, is this love? Is this the reality of love? And when, whenever you, you know, look at the other aspects of your life, and God has given us so many amazing things, pizzas, burritos, sexual intimacy, all of those kind of things, what we are looking for is the greatest example of love in the world. John says, this is how we know. This is how we know love in what God has done for
0: us. That's it. You so perfectly communicated what John himself communicates mm. in 1 John 3.16. Yes. We asked the question, how do we understand love? God is love. Okay, so. What does that exactly mean? The book of First John talks about that a lot. He does. And in chapter 3 and verse 16, he says, Hereby perceive we the love of God that he gave his life for us. That's correct. As you're saying, at the foot of the cross, that's where you, you find out. Mm. And we ought to give our lives for the brethren. Mm. So two ways he gives that you can understand the love of God. By contemplation of what he did for you and by doing the same thing for other people. Yes. That's how he says you understand the love of God. Yes, I can't get the references maybe perfect here, but I'm pretty sure First John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments mm. and his commandments are not grievous. Correct. That's interesting. So this is the love of God. So the love of God is expressed in keeping the commandments are the expressed will of God who is love. Therefore, they must be love. Expressed mm. right mm. if they're the express will of God and God is love, then they're love expressed. Mm. And Romans 13, I think it's 11, says, is the fulfilling of the law. So, love fulfills the law because love to the law is an expression of love. Mm. And I, I think so here you go. This is the love of God that you keep his commandments and they're not grievous. First John 3 4 says, if anyone says that they know God mm. and they don't keep his commandments, they're a liar. Mm. Knowing God is love, now- and love is. Is, is keeping god's commands yes which are expressions of love yes and the, the key thing is matt that that we cannot strip
1: love out of god this is what we started off the podcast because the thing is god is holy god is morally perfect god is by his nature he is the very definition of morality he defines everything that's good And what is not, um, what is contradictory to God is, is evil. So we have an intrinsic morality with love. You cannot separate it. You cannot say, okay, we're going to pull out the feeling or the relationship or the desires or the freedom, shall I say, without also including the holiness,
0: the moral perfection, the judgment. Against evil and against sin. This is very, very important. Yeah, this, you know, man, I just want to just say, so I don't forget the missional, there's missional impact Mm. in this conversation. There's this Ellen White statement where she says that that the Holy Spirit leads us. We do not lead the Holy Spirit. Mm. He's our guide. We're not his guide. You can get that from just the text. The Spirit of God is guide, John 16, 13. We're not his guide. Mm. He empowers us. He teaches us he testifies of Jesus. God is who he reveals himself to be and the spirit guides us into the truth of what that is and who he is and what love means. Mm. And I think through through a continued acquaintance with the word of God, you get to know the God who is love and then therefore you you understand more fully what love is. And then you can communicate accurately love and God to the world because the spirit has led you to understanding, the Spirit has guided you to understanding, and the Spirit has taught us, yes. and as you say, like revealed to us the love of God. So, and, um, so Matt, yes. you
1: you raise the question of what's the missional significance, what's the evangelistic yep. significance, and this is it: if God loves the world and we love people too, if they're headed on a path towards destruction, is it loving? To simply tolerate that and allow them to continue walking down that path. That is the big issue because we can do it in many different ways. If we say it doesn't matter what they do on Sabbath, it, it would just we, we are not going to be legalistic. We're not going to impose our ideas upon them. But if they're actually heading down a destructive path with regards to keeping it, then it's not loving to simply ignore that or, or tolerate that. And certainly, I'm not saying come down like a ton of bricks, be judgmental, critical, all of those kind of things. But a loving person would recognize that and say, I want to lead
0: them in ways that the path of eternal life. That's right. It's By the way, it's even just like the law itself. The, law, the moral law of God itself expresses love. It's an expression of love. That's right. But the law... As a written code doesn't save you, mm-hmm. even though the law is holy, just and good. And we're mm-hmm. not trying to imply that's the case on any level, or that a person could attain to acceptance with God by keeping the law of love, even though it's the law of love. That that's just like the law of God is a is an expression of love, but we're saved by the grace of God, through the work of God, through the Son of God. God has saved us and redeemed us in Christ, and we come and, and, and we come to salvation through faith. But this relates to what you're saying, because God is gracious. God is patient. We should be gracious. We should be patient. But at the same time that God is gracious and patient and has offered us salvation through what he has done, he invites us to align our lives through his strength and power with the law of love so that we can be healthier and happier and live more full existence and be loving. If I saw people living out of harmony with the spirit of love, the principles of love and who whose lives were miserable because of that. Yeah. And just left them there. That's not loving. Yes. It's it's like the doctor who knows you have cancer, but you play golf on Sundays and he doesn't want to like create a situation where you guys aren't having a good, good time on the golf course anymore. So he just decides to refrain from telling you that, that you have cancer. Yes.
1: The way yeah. that you tell somebody, you know of course love has a lot to say there. You don't just rock up to somebody and say you're dying of yep. cancer. From a mental health problem mental yep. health perspective.
0: By the way, next week you'll be dead. Next yeah. week you'll be dead.
1: That's not. But the right. thing is this: if a person is heading down a destructive path with regards to keeping the Sabbath, if they are not understanding that currently there is a pre-advent investigative judgment going on in heaven, and that understanding is not informing the way they live right now, if they are living a a lifestyle in terms of their sexuality and orientation which is based on a false construct of love, then it's actually not loving to to leave them to head down that path. And this is so important. Evangelism is very practical. It's Evangelism is about sharing these amazing truths about who God is and his understanding of the future prophecies. But it's also very practical. What does God want us to do right here, right now? And love, this is the amazing thing. God's love informs not only a, a big picture of who he is, but also our day-to-day decisions, the way we live our lives, because God knows what's best for us. And we would not be loving if we did not share with people what God has revealed to us through his grace in the commandments that he has shared with us. Love and evangelism are, are deeply interconnected, and we cannot strip out God's love from effective and,
0: and the most beneficial the, the greatest concept of evangelism absolutely hey listen Sven this we're just going to end on that thank you so much for for the time and thank you everyone for joining us it's been a blessing and we just want to leave you with that central thought that Sven brought up and that is a thoughtful hour a day a thoughtful minute a day is better than a thoughtful nothing a day mm. but just finding ourselves in the presence of God with the word of God at the cross beholding who God is considering Every facet of what God endured on Mm. our behalf and and God's disposition towards a fallen race, towards an ungrateful race, towards a race that's in the midst, in, in the process of rejecting Him. And I think that that's really where we find love. Here's how we understand the love of God, that He gave Himself for us and we should give ourselves for others. So thank you again, guys, for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next week for all things evangelism. God bless you.